Um, we're going to turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. If you remember last uh, week, or if you were here last week, we, we finally ventured back into the Gospel of John after being away from it for uh, quite, quite a number of weeks as we ventured into the epistle of Jude, and we had some guest speakers and different messages along the way, and we've just delved back into it, so you kind of have to get your minds back into this gospel and, to, uh, and into John, into John's mindset as the author and what he's trying to communicate, and uh, sometimes that's a difficult transition. And so just a, a little bit of a recap going into what, what we covered last week, John chapter 18 really begins... Um, the, uh, the rest of the narrative of Jesus' path to the cross. Uh, he's finished his time of teaching with his disciples. He've, he's concluded that officially with his great high priestly prayer. And last week, we see that he heads now to the Garden of Gethsemane, where we know famously he will be betrayed by, by Judas, and we saw that take, uh, take place. But John is writing with a different perspective. Remember, he's not writing another gospel just to give us all the same information to sort of regurgitate what we already know. Uh, but he, he's sort of choosing to highlight certain aspects. And what we, what we looked at last week was the divinity of Jesus uh, through that episode. And I just want to draw your attention to what it said there in verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? We see right off the omniscience of Jesus that he is all-knowing. He knows perfectly well that Judas will find them in the garden. He's not going to some obscure garden to, to hide from Judas. This is not a place to find refuge from him. He went to the place that Judas knew he was going. The disciples were well accustomed to going there with Jesus. And so he went to the one place where Judas would be certain to find him, and knowing all things that were going to come upon him, knowing the betrayal, knowing the cross, knowing all those things, he put himself forward. He didn't flee. And then we saw his omnipotence, his great power, as he came out and said the great I am statement, and, and all of the soldiers and everyone are knocked to the ground. The I am who, who heals the servant's ear, Malchus, right there on the spot. And we, we see at the very end his, his amazing, perfect obedience to the Father. In verse 11 saying, Put your sword into the sheath, speaking to Peter. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Because he's, he's all, all about being obedient to the Father. And so we just looked at those, those things that John is highlighting. Now, we begin today with his arrest. And with the first phase of his six trials... Yeah, that's right. Jesus had to endure uh, six, you could say six phases, really, of two separate trials. Jesus is, a, is going to undergo a religious trial, right, under the uh, religious authorities, but he's also going to undergo a civil trial underneath Pontius Pilate and King Herod. And in, when you put those together and look at the different phases of those trials with all the Gospels, there are six of them. Quite remarkable. And we'll look at that in a moment. But the most remarkable thing about this passage today is the manner in which John uh, interweaves for us two uh, simultaneous dramas. Um, you know I came from a, an acting background, so I, I don't mind drama necessarily. And as I look at this, John is doing something completely unique. You don't find this in the other Gospels. He's presenting sort of these, these two scenes going on on two entirely different stages. 
and he's going to bounce back and forth to interweave these th- two things uh, together. You have the, uh, the arrest and the, the first trial of Jesus on the one stage, sort of interwoven woven with the denial of, of Peter over on this uh, second stage. And if you remember John's purpose of writing this is to highlight Jesus' glory, then it highlights um, um, something that is probably one of the most fundamental things to Christian doctrine. And that is the glory of Christ contrasted with the sinfulness of man. Two things happening on completely different stages. The glory of Christ, the sinfulness of man. And unfortunately, Peter is the main focus of that. But you see the faithfulness of Christ contrasted with the faithlessness of Peter, don't you? You'll see the courage of Christ contrasted with the cowardice of Peter. We'll see the sacrificial love of Christ but we'll see the self-preservation of Peter. He's just there to, you know, save his own skin. The obedience of Christ and the disobedience of Peter. And so as we read through this today, we're going to read through verses 12 to 27. I want you to see how John does this. Two different stages with different scenes taking place, starting in verse 12. Then a detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her, who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself Therefore, uh, therefore, they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of, of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time in your word. Your word is living and powerful. And Lord, we just pray today that it would show forth its power. Speak to our hearts today, reveal truth for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here are, the, here are the four scenes taking place on the two stages. Hopefully you kind of got a glimpse of that, but we'll walk through these. Stage one, scene one. Stage one, scene one, we have the arrest of Jesus. Jesus' arrest taking place. Look at verse 12. 
Then the detachment of troops and the captain, the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Remember there was attachment of detachment of troops back uh, last week we looked at. It was the Spira, which is a tenth of a legion, could be up to 600 men. It also could be a maniple, which is a 30th of a legion, 200 men. Either way, a lot of troops, a lot of soldiers. And they arrest Jesus and they bind him. And again, you have the added detail that Jesus was was bound here, which is significant because it tells us again there was an eyewitness, an eyewitness that sees the binding of Jesus, that is John. But I think it's significant for another reason. I just want to quickly point this out. I'm sure there was something of this that was standard procedure for someone that was just arrested, that you would bind them. That is certainly the case today. But I think it also suggests something deeper. Now, Matthew and Mark both also mentioned that Jesus was bound. Um, and he's bound as he's being taken to Pontius Pilate for the civil trial. But here, John mentions that he's bound, and he mentions it twice here and then in um, this verse, and then in verse 24. And both references come right before his religious trial. So a, a different trial altogether. And what is the deeper meaning here? I think there is a deeper meaning. If you go back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 9, very, very familiar story. Abraham is told by God to bring uh, Isaac up to a mountain and sacrifice him. And verse 9, he says, And they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Yes, remember that. So Isaac the son is bound by the father in order that the father might sacrifice the son. That's the, the picture we have in that narrative in Abraham there, and we certainly see the, old, the whole thing being played out here as well. The Old Testament sacrifices had to be bound to the altar. And Jesus, going forward here, he is bound, but he's bound as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. And I think John is trying to point us into that frame of mind. He's going forward as a sacrifice. I think it's intentional. Look at verse 13. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So they led him away to Annas, not Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest, but they take him to, to Annas. Now, both Luke chapter 3, verse 2, and Acts 4, 6 mention to us that both Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. But that's contrary to what we see in the Old Testament. We, we learn that there's one high priest, and he, he rules, or he's in that high office for a year, for, or for, I'm sorry, for his lifetime, not just a year, for his whole lifetime. Um, and so why do, we, why do we see this? What's going on? Well, while that was true, the Romans did not like that. They didn't like the concentration of power being in one person. And so they frequently came in and changed the high priests. So Annas was high priest from AD 6 to AD 15 when he was deposed by the governor at that time, which was Valerius Gratus. Now, the governor at this period of time is Pontius Pilate, a name we know very well, right? Um, But the governor at that time, the one that deposed Valerius, uh, was his predecessor, it was uh, Valerius. And um, a son came in and ruled instead. It was Eleazar. He was appointed high priest. Um, And he only served for a couple of years, AD 16 to 17. And after that, we have uh, Caiaphas come into the picture uh, around AD 18. So Caiaphas becomes high priest. Now, the Jews did not like the fact, and this is understandable, that the Romans would come and meddle with their affairs, right? And to dictate who should be the high priest. So from the Jewish mindset, and particularly when the Mosaic law deemed that the office of high priest 
would be held for a lifetime. They would recognize Caiaphas as high priest, as the Romans wanted them to do, but also Annas. And Annas was, for them, really considered to be the, the true power for many of the Jews, really the power behind the high priesthood. They honored Annas as well. Uh, in addition to that, Annas had five sons succeed him, and Caiaphas is his son-in-law. So the family ties to that high priesthood are very, very strong in the family of Annas. So I want you to see that because Annas has massive ties. Now, what do we know about this guy, Annas? Well, we do know that he was a very ambitious guy, notoriously greedy. What was the condition of the temple when we first see it here in John? You have to go way back to John chapter 2. Do you remember what Jesus had to do? He had to go up and cleanse the temple, right? Because pilgrims would come from all over, right, for the Passover, and they would bring their animals to sacrifice, and these animals would be inspected by uh, the priests, and they would find some fault, right? Something not quite right. It's not perfectly without blemish. Uh, this one's not going to do. You're going to have to buy our own lamb here, right? And so they'll, they'll buy that one off you, and we'll give you this one. But they just did this exchange with exorbitant prices. Well, Annas, he took the proceeds of that. He gained from that. You had the money changers, right? You have to have the temple coin, the Jewish currency, to come and pay the temple tax. So your, your currency won't work, so you have to do an exchange uh, rate, right? It's like the U.S. dollars to the pound exchange rate. I'm quite familiar with that. I have to look up that kind of stuff all the time. You have to do the same thing there. And so they would get these um, exchange rates, and they would get ripped off, and Annas would get the proceeds of that. And that's the condition of the outer courts of the temple. That's where those things took place when Jesus arrives on the scene. In fact, historically, that, that place, that business that took place was so tied to Annas, it became known as the Bazaar of Annas because that's how much they knew Annas' influence and power and control were involved in what took place there. So what do you think Annas' attitude would be toward Jesus, who's, who's one, of, one of his first actions was to go and drive out all those money changers, right? Set free all those animals. Like, there goes his money. There goes his proceeds. And so he has a particular hatred for Jesus, no doubt, he said, you get that guy, you bring him to me first. I want first crack at him. Uh, and Jesus does it twice in that area. So um, you have Annas, but then you have uh, Caiaphas. What did it say about Caiaphas? Look at verse uh, 14. Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. John is reminding of us of an event that he actually recorded for us. It was in John chapter 11. So we should go there because he wants us to go there mentally. John chapter 11, verse 45. You might remember this. This is really where it all began. This is where the plot to kill Jesus was conceived. When the religious leaders said, this is our only option. We got to kill this guy. And Caiaphas was the brainchild here. In John 11, verse 45, it says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. That was right after the resurrection of Lazarus. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should 
perish. That's what John is taking our minds back to. Now, John gives us a note there. He says in verse 51, now this he did not say on his own authority, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So this event takes place and John tells us, but this is really what happened here, right? He was an instrument of God. He prophesied, but Caiaphas was um, uh, the human sort of um, engineer behind this plot, right? It's probably better if we just kill this guy. And we get an idea that he is a shrewd man because he presents here a very false dilemma, doesn't he? He basically gives them two extremes, alternatives. It's either one man dies or the whole nation. There's, there's no other options. We either got to kill this guy or all of us are dead. Well, there is another option. We could believe in him, <laughs> but that's not presented as an option. It's either we kill the one guy or all of us die. Well, what are you going to choose? Well, let's just kill the one guy. I mean, that's no brainer, right? That's Caiaphas. That's the idea he presents. It's more profitable. It's more expedient if one man should die. And so here we have these two notoriously wicked men, religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas, who are supposed to be religious leaders of God's people, and God's son is in their hands. What's going to happen to Jesus? Go back to chapter 18. Let's see what he says. We don't know. Because verse 15 takes us to someplace else. That's the stage one, Jesus' arrest. Oh, we're going to go someplace else. John says, let's go to stage two. We, we don't even get the answer what's going to happen to Jesus. He takes us to what's happening on stage two with Peter. So here we have stage two, scene one on stage two, Peter's protest. Verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So again, we've, we've kind of left what's happening with Jesus and we've gone to a different perspective. What's happening to Peter? Now, if you remember back to Mark's record, he tells us that after Jesus was arrested, they all forsook him and fled. So all, all the disciples ran, right? They, 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 they scattered. Um, and Jesus had prophesied that they would do that. He said that in Matthew 26, 31 and in Mark 14, 27. But what he was prophesying was uh, to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 13, 7. And that is this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So this is the prophecy that uh, is, is being played out right before them. The, the sheep scatter. But John tells us something interesting, that two disciples, you know, they sort of run off. Hey, oh, no one's chasing us. Well, let's just like turn back and see what's going on, right? So that's what they start to do. They turn back and they begin to follow Jesus at a distance. And one of them is Simon Peter, which is probably, you know, not unusual for us. Okay, Simon Peter, naturally he would do uh, something like that. But the other is only described as another disciple. Another disciple with Peter is following close behind. Now you've had some practice with this word another um, we've, we've mentioned it several times in our studies over the, over the uh, last, uh, well, even few months because we saw it recently in Jude. There are two words for another. This one is alos. It means another of a same kind. The other one is heteros, and it means another of a different kind. So this one is alos, another of the same kind. Different kind was used in Jude when we talked about the strange flesh. Do you remember that? Angels went after strange flesh. Angels went after flesh of another kind, the flesh of humans. Humans went after flesh of the angels, strange flesh, another kind, a different kind. 
But here we have another of the same kind, a disciple of Jesus following him. Now, taking that into account, there are lots of people who try to tell us who this other disciple could be. It could be Joseph of Arimathea. It could be Nicodemus. It could be all these different people. Well, okay, let's entertain that for a minute. Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, neither of them were in the upper room. So neither of them were traveling with the disciples through this time. Neither of them are mentioned as being in the garden by any of the gospel writers. Could they have somehow figured out that this was taking place and they were going to the garden? Yeah, stretch a bit. Probably not the best guess here. Who is this other disciple? Well, it's most likely John. You have to go way back to our introduction of this gospel to remember that because this gospel, John does not mention his name. Do you remember that? John doesn't mention his name. You won't find John's name in here. In fact, uh, what's the most common way he refers to himself in here? Just say it off. You know it. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's right. The disciple whom Jesus loved. So to find out who this other disciple could be, we actually could turn to chapter 20. Just take a right-hand turn. Remember the empty tomb? Mary Magdalene goes to the empty tomb, and then she runs back. Chapter 20, verse 2 says, She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved. So we find out who the other disciple is. It's the one whom Jesus loved. Who's the one whom Jesus loved? Well, that's John. John signifies that as himself. In fact, later in verse 8, it says, the other disciple whom came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. That's, that's John. So who do we have here? We have, um, we have these two following uh, here. We have Peter and we have John following close by. But what it tells us here is something interesting. It says that the disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard to the high priest. Now, that is speaking of that other disciple, okay? If that's John or whoever that is, that other disciple somehow is known by the high priest and that goes, he's he's let in. Now, some people say, well, that couldn't be John. He's just a fisherman. Well, who do fishermen sell their fish to? People, right? I'm just guessing here. Right. You've got to have customers. I mean, they weren't just fishermen. They were entrepreneurs. And we have extra biblical texts as well that tell us that John used to deliver fish to the high priest's house when he used to work for his father. And that's just one possibility, but I like another possibility. John, through his mother Salome, was of priestly descent. Now, we'll go through and discover his mother and all that in the next chapter when we get to chapter 19. Now, Salome, it tells us, was the sister of Mary, mother of Jesus. Mary is related to Elizabeth. Elizabeth is married to Zacharias, who's a high priest. So if, if Mary then is in the priestly descent, then certainly so, um, so we have John here as well in terms of this connection with his mother. So it could be that he's of priestly descent. And Eusebius, who was an early church historian, cites a letter from Polycrates, who was a bishop of Ephesus, late, uh, late second century, and he tells us that John, this John, uh, was a high priest. So it's very, very possible that he could have this priestly descent, whatever the case may be, he's well known by that priest, and he is let into the courtyard, but, but Peter isn't. You ever had friends like that, where they could get in, and then you're out, wait, what am I, chopped liver? Wait, wait. He knows everybody, and this is, he just, John has the connections. But look at verse 16. Peter, but Peter stood at the door outside. So then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter 
And that's got to be minutes. So John has to go back out. He's got to vouch for Peter uh, to get him in. Hey, listen, I know this guy. Maybe he slipped him a 20. I don't know. He's like, I got to let it. Why don't you bring this guy in? Either way, John is well known because he's even able to talk to uh, the girl who operates the door. Now, that's another clue for us, by the way, that we're not up at the temple complex because a girl is manning the door. The men man the doors at the temple complex. There's a, a girl operating it here. We just have a female pronoun, but in the next verse, literally says servant girl. And so you are someplace different. We are literally at Annas' house, the courtyard of his house. And so this girl lets Peter in. And so naturally, this question comes out. She blurts out this question in verse, uh, verse 17. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Interesting, huh? Now this question of Peter assumes something of John, first of all. It assumes that, that he is known as a disciple right? John's a disciple, but you're not also, right? You're not, you're with this guy. You know, you know, John, he's a disciple. So it's almost like he has an out here because John is a disciple. He doesn't seem to be bothered uh, by it. John has gone into the lion's den. He's entered the courtyard as a known disciple of Jesus. So you would think Peter would sort of find strength in this, right? I mean, you've got someone with you. Doesn't Ecclesiastes tell us something like that? One person could be overpowered, but two can withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken, right? There's strength in numbers is the idea there, right? You'd have some encouragement by someone else being there. But I don't think Peter's looking for that. And so the question's asked. It's asked in a way that expects a negative answer. And he bites on that. You're not also, oh, no, I'm not. Well, you're not. I mean, that's, that's temptation calling you, isn't it? That's temptation. You got an easy answer here. You're, you're, you're not, are you? And he, he, he goes for it. He bites, he gives in. He says, I am not. And the question is, why should he deny his Lord? John didn't. He was just as well known to be a disciple of Jesus. I don't know, maybe Peter's not accustomed to being sort of in the upper crust crowd here. Uh, maybe maybe he's, uh, the setting is unfamiliar. He lost his nerve. Why does, why does Peter deny his Lord after, after proclaiming his loyalty to the Lord? Remember, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. After defending his Savior and chopping off the ear of of the Malchus, right? Why, why is he in this state? I think it's precisely because of his boasting. I think it's because of his impetuous behavior. His inability to align himself with the plan and purpose of God. Remember, he still doesn't comprehend that Jesus is there for something different. Uh, it's ultimately overconfidence. I've got it all figured out. That's Peter's failure. I don't need any help. I've got it all down. Do you remember Jesus' reply to Peter's boast when he said, I'll lay down my life? Jesus said in John 13, 38, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you've denied me three times. Remember that? That rocked his world. What are you talking about? I will never deny you. Why does Jesus warn Peter, by the way? Why does he warn him about, about that? He knows the heart of man. He knows the state of his heart, and he knows that he is, he is playing around with pride. You're, you're going to need me in this, Peter. He knows his heart is focused on self and not on God. A heart that proclaims faithfulness, uh, loyalty, love, but in action will prove to be false. He's proclaiming these things with his lips, but in action we see something different. In, in, in Psalm chapter 10, verse 4, 
We're told the wicked in his proud continence does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Why does Peter fall here? Because God is in none of his thoughts. Yeah, sure, Jesus is here, but I can ride the coattails up to, you know, fame, popularity. And yes, he's made some uh, amazing, you you know, uh, uh, statements of faith, hasn't he? Who else will we go to? You have the words of eternal life, yet he's he's still fluctuating here. And here we see it. He's not thinking about God. And there's also something more sinister going on here. In Luke's account of Jesus' prediction of betrayal, he begins with this sentence in Luke 22, 31. And the Lord said to him, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Do you remember that? Sift is siniazo. It means to shake, to agitate. Figuratively, it has the idea of trying one's faith to the verge of overthrow. It'll just be, you'll just be overdone. It will capsize. Satan wants to shake you. He wants to agitate your spirit to the point of breaking. Now, my mind always goes to question. If you were told this, if Jesus came here today and said, you know, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, what would be the first question out of your mouth? What'd you say to him? Did you say no? I mean, right? Tell me you said no. No, you can't do that to my, my good Kevin over here, right? You're not, I'm not going to let you do it. No, you, you can't sift Peter like wheat. He's going to build my church. He's the wrong, you know. I, no. That would be my mind. Like, what, what, what did you say? It may be that Satan literally did, did go to Jesus and ask to, to try Peter to test him. But it, it may also be that due to the fact that God is just not in Peter's thoughts, pride is ruling there. He's, he's placed him in a vulnerable, vulnerable position. Satan's asked for Simon Peter, but Peter's asking for it. You know what I'm saying? He's put himself in a place where he's very vulnerable. Psalm 31, 23 says, O oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. The faithful person is the person that's preserved. But those with pride get repaid. We even get tried because God wants to strip that out of us. He doesn't want us to rely on self. He doesn't want us to be self-reliant. He wants us to be Christ-reliant, spirit-reliant. And so here, the prophecy is beginning to take fruition. I'm not. I'm not with him. I don't know him. And he gives the girl the answer she's looking for, and he hurries inside to warm himself. And verse 18 tells us that the servants and the officers who made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Oh, this confirms, again, that the hearing is at night because they have a fire uh, going, or the early, early, early hours of the morning. Eyewitnesses also here because they can see that he's, John can see that he's making a fire. But what this scene ends with is Peter tucked among the servants of wickedness. This is ironic because John made a point of separating Judas from the disciples. You remember that? We know Judas arrives with the troops. He knows he comes with all this uh, detachment of troops, but we were told uh, back in verse 5 that Judas, who betrayed him, stood with them. He stood with the enemy. He stood with them, not with Jesus. And ironically, Peter's doing the same thing. Peter's standing with the enemy. He's with the officers uh, um, and, and the enemy. So this is one of those things, what's, what's Peter going to do? I mean, Judas, Judas went there. What's Peter going to do? Is he going to go there? Is he going to deny his Lord? Is he going to betray him? Is he going to leave him? This is where John leaves us in the scene. Like, what's going to happen to Peter? 
So we're, what's going to happen to Jesus? Oh, over here. Oh, oh, what's going to happen to Peter? No, nope, guess where we're going? Back to Jesus. Don't you love John toying with us like this? That tricky guy. So look at this, though. We're at stage one again, but we're in scene two. Stage one, scene two. We're back to the trial of Jesus. Verse 19, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Now, here we're coming to the preliminary hearing. I mentioned that there are these six um, phases related to the two trials, the religious trial, the civil trial. Now, if you were to read the Gospel of Luke, you would get the most coverage of those trials. You'll get five of the six. So if you want to know like where all those stages are, read, read Luke, you'll get most of them, five of six. You read Matthew, Mark, you're going to get four out, out of the six. You read John, you only get half. <laughs> you get three of the six phases of trials. But what you do get is the one preliminary hearing that the others don't cover. The one Luke is missing is here. John is the only one that covers this hearing. In fact, he fills in a gap for us. If it were not for John, we'd, we'd kind of be confused about what took place. He's the one that tells us Jesus went to Annas first. He's in this preliminary hearing at the home of Annas. It's an informal hearing, and the whole thing is a sham. The whole thing is a sham. Like we read back in John 11 just a, a few minutes ago, the fate of Jesus has been determined by the religious authorities. We want to kill him. That's murder, <laughs> right? So they have a plot to murder Jesus. So what they're trying to do here is to add some sort of little layer of legality to their murder. And so what Annas is doing here is he's trying to ask questions that will get Jesus to incriminate himself. Tell me about your disciples. Tell me about your doctrine. He wants Jesus to do the dirty work. And the thing is, is that it was illegal, illegal to force a witness to testify against themselves. They had to have people come and testify against them. It's illegal to do that. Now, do you think Jesus knows the laws? Do you think he knows what Annas is doing? He absolutely knows what's going on. Look at Jesus' response here in verse 20. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Do you see Jesus' wisdom here? I'm not going to incriminate myself. I, I spoke openly. The Jews have heard it. I've done it in the synagogues. I've done it in the temple. So you go do your work. You go find the people. You go find the witnesses to come back and testify against me because they heard what I said. Jesus isn't uh, being rude here. He is, he is seeing what they're doing. He is demanding that the requirements of the law for legitimate um, accusations and accusers be met. You can't do what you're doing. You're breaking the law. You must bring an accusation against me. They're breaking the law by attempting to force him into incriminating himself. And one of the officers doesn't take well to Jesus' reply. Verse 22, and when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Now, this is also an illegal action. <laughs> it was illegal for you to strike an unconvicted person, an unconvicted prisoner. You can have a prisoner, but if they're not convicted yet, you couldn't strike them. Once they're convicted, you could you know, do whatever you wanted to them. You might remember this happened to Apostle Paul in Acts 23.2. In Acts 23.2, it says the high priest Ananias at that time commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Do you see that? You're trying to judge me by the law, but you're breaking the law yourself. You're not allowed to strike me. He's, he's pointing that out. And Jesus is doing the same thing. However, he maintained his calm. He didn't call him a whitewashed wall. And he, he's calm. He's collected just as he was at the uh, arrest. And look what he says in verse 23. Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Very shrewd. Do you see his logic? He's saying, if I was wrong, if I have spoken evil, then bear witness of the evil. You should, you should correct what I said instead of hitting me. But if I have spoken evil, if, if, I'm, uh, if I haven't spoken evil, if I'm correct in what I say, then what justifiable reason do you have for hitting me? Again, he's just putting it in their, their court. And here I want to bring back to the big picture of what we're seeing here. We have these two stages. You have the sin of man contrasted with the truth of Jesus. He's confronting them with the truth. You're breaking the law. Oh, you just broke it again, <laughs> right? You have this big contrast. And this is the world. When pressed with the truth, they have nothing to do, no, no reaction uh, other than to resort to violence and abuse, right? They love darkness rather than light. And the world today, we've, they've been screaming for tolerance. It wants tolerance. We must tolerate. But when truth is proclaimed, it, it strikes you on the mouth, right? Why? Well, because what it really wants is to destroy the truth. It doesn't want tolerance. Um, it doesn't really even care about condoning. It wants to destroy truth, Right? It, it, it wants to extinguish the light. This is John chapter 3 in practice. This is what's been played out here. This is what's being played out in our world today. In John chapter 3, verse 19, you might remember this. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So here you go. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Um, and then in Matthew 5.14, he says, you are the light of the world. So he's the light of the world, and now the light of the world is in Christians. Christians are the light, and the world hates the light. <laughs> Why? Because the light exposes their dark, evil deeds as such. And so the world is seeking to extinguish the light. That's what's taking place, and it's taking place on the stage here, way back in Jesus' time, and it's taking place today. You have Annas, his cohorts. They don't want the truth about Jesus. They just want to kill him. They want to extinguish the light of the world. That's what they're trying to do. And in verse 24, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Annas, he's not going to be getting the self-incriminating evidence he was hoping for. Instead, he sends Jesus to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But notice again, he's, he's bound. So, so John mentions it twice. Jesus is our, our sacrifice. He's sacrificing himself. He is the truth. He's spoken truth. But he's on the way to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of those men, those very men. And the scene shifts once again. So we just leave Jesus there on his way to another trial, and we come back to scene two, stage two, Peter's denial. Look at verse 25. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now, as we saw earlier, Peter is standing with the enemies of Jesus. It's not a good place for him to be. He should have fled temptation. Having given temptation once, right, he should have, he should have removed himself from any similar influence. It's a good lesson here for us all. 
any influence that could tempt you again, especially having failed once, you leave temptation. He, he's there. Now, remember, he would have been present in the garden when Jesus prayed, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Obviously, he's forgotten that part. And so he remains, and so he's asked a second time if he's one of his disciples. He has a chance to redeem himself, right? He has a chance to, to get out of this a little bit. But does he? No. He gives into fear. He again responds, I am not. And so what happens here? This is a great thing for us. Is, is it goes from, from pretty bad to worse. <laughs> he's denied Jesus twice. He denies him again, and the repeated questioning, the repeated denial raises suspicion of one particular individual who just happens to be in amongst the group. Did you notice him? Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? (laughs) Now, you just got to love Peter's luck here, don't you? (laughs) No, we know it has nothing to do with luck. A relative of the man Peter just attacked in the garden says, wait a minute, you look familiar to me, right? Haven't I seen you someplace before? You know, Peter's doing one of these things like, you know, yeah, yeah, it was in the garden, wasn't it? Yeah, you were, you were there. Hang on a second. You're the guy that cut off my friend's ear. You see how the situation just worsened. It wasn't a crime to be a disciple. It wasn't a crime to be a disciple of Jesus, at least not yet. Remember, Jesus asked the officers actually twice who they were looking for. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? He was establishing the fact that they weren't there for the disciples. They were there for Jesus. So I don't know why Peter feels the pressure. They're not there for him. It wasn't a crime to be his disciple. What was a crime? Oh, assaulting a man with a sword. So this causes Peter to panic. Even more so than he did before. And so he denies Peter emphatically a third time. Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Sin is always a slippery, slippery slope. How do you say it? Slippery slope, that is. I just made up my own word, slippery. <laughs> slippery. It's a slippery slope. If we dabble with the fire of sin, we eventually will get burned. And Peter should have left after that first failure, right? Found forgiveness and moved on, repented. But he stuck around for sin to happen a second time, and then it just got worse. Now, at this moment, I just want to close with a couple observations. Two things happened here that link the two stages. Remember these two stages we've been looking at, stage one, stage two. Luke mentions one of them. John doesn't mention them. And that is a particular look by Jesus. In Luke twenty two sixty one, 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter on that third denial. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter is seen by the Lord from stage one. He sees him. And the second thing that links it is that rooster that crows, because that was what Jesus prophesied would be the link. The rooster will crow. Now, John, or sorry, Luke tells us that upon hearing that, upon hearing that rooster, upon seeing the look of Jesus, all those things are recalled by Peter, and he went out and he wept bitterly. He's overwhelmed with shame and guilt. He's distraught over his, his failure, and so he flees weeping. 
And so you have the glory of, of Christ and the reign of, of truth being highlighted on stage one. And you have the sin of man, and, uh, or uh, the weakness of man and the reign of sin on, on stage two. And Christ is going to the cross to give strength to the weak, right? He's going to the cross to free them from sin's tyranny, to free us. Peter has failed. Satan's sifting seems successful. Say that four times fast. Satan's sifting seems successful. Why did I write that? But wait a second. We only looked at the first half of Jesus' comment about Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. You know what Jesus said after that? Verse, 20, verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus did have an answer, didn't he? He did have an answer. He didn't say no to Satan. Instead, he said, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for my Peter. That's his response to Satan. He didn't tell him off. He didn't tell him, get behind me, Satan, like he did to Peter. Instead, he just prayed. He prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. So this brings up the question, did Peter's faith fail? Well, it did it initially, didn't it? He failed here initially, but, but Peter returned to Jesus, just as Jesus said, and his faith was verified. And ultimately, ultimately, he did not fail. We will fail along the way, folks. We will be Peter's sometime, right? We'll not remove ourselves from temptation. We'll give in to that. We'll look at thing, that thing on the internet. We'll go to that place we shouldn't go to. We'll stay in that relationship a little longer than we should. But we should come out of that and return to our Lord to seek forgiveness, as Peter does. And what this does, I don't, want, I don't want you to forget this. This sets up an amazing scene of restoration that's going to come. We're going to see this at the end of John. Because Peter's faith fails here. It just seems hopeless. It's, it's done. The rooster crowed. Has he become Judas as well? Has he finished with his Lord? No, because Jesus intercedes for us. He intercedes for those who are his. This is a verse we looked at last week. Last week. I'll close with this, Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save. He makes intercession. He prayed for Peter. What a blessing, isn't that? What a blessing to know that in those times when we're weak, he is strong. And in those times when we are afraid, He's courageous. In those times when we abandon him, he's still faithful to us. He stays with us. Those times when we, we, we crumple and defeat, ultimately he triumphs in victory. I think of Paul's words in Romans 7. He says, what wretched man that I am. Remember that? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We ultimately can go to him and thank him. We, we will sometimes be a Peter. We will sometimes fail. But ultimately what John wants us to see here is the amazing contrast that men will fail on their own, given into their own strength. He's separated from Peter. Peter's separate from Jesus. We cannot succeed without Christ. And that crow of that rooster links the scenes together to show us we need him ultimately. And we're going to follow Jesus the rest of the way to the cross. And at the end of that, we're going to see an amazing picture of restoration in the life of Peter. Look forward to that. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for John and his 
manner of writing this particular narrative to highlight, to contrast these things for us, that we might see them more clearly in the way that you desire those things to be seen. It's just a testament to how deep and marvelous your word is, that we could read these things in different gospels and just come away with different aspects of your glory, different aspects of the truth of the gospel. I thank you for the truth that, that is highlighted today. Christ reigns supreme, the glory of Christ. Man, given into himself, is sinful and weak, cowardly, unable to withstand temptation. But you are strong. You are the one we need. And you've come to sacrifice yourself for us. And for us here and living in the 20th century, you came, you died, and you rose again victorious. And we thank you. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.